Hi, everybody. Welcome to Human Capital, produced by Goalspan. I'm your host, Jeff Hunt. I love the opportunity on each episode to better understand the deeply human aspect of work. At the core of our humanness is the desire to be emotionally healthy, both at home and work. Speaking of work, for most of us, we're spending at least a third of our lives there. The workplace can be a place of encouragement, insight, compassion, and relational connection, where all employees, whether they are leaders or individual contributors, feel seen, heard, and cared about. Or it can feel like a production factory where these life-giving values are replaced by an achievement orientation that doesn't value human capital. At the center of this is mental health and well-being. Mental health has gotten significantly more attention in the workplace over the past two years, thanks to a number of stressors, including the pandemic, school and workplace shootings, inflation, racial and police violence, the war in Ukraine, wildfires, political unrest. I could go on and on. In fact, you're probably getting stressed by hearing me just list off some of those things. Many of these stressors have unfolded in quick succession, compounding the damage to our collective mental health. In 2020, mental health support went from a nice to have to a true business imperative with the pandemic. But if you fast forward to 22, the stakes have been raised even higher, thanks in part to a greater awareness of the workplace factors that contribute to either positive or negative mental health. C-level executives and other leaders are now actually more likely than others to report at least one mental health symptom. Let's finally put the stigma to rest and admit that mental health stressors affect everybody. According to a recent large-scale study of mental health in the workplace published by HBR, an overwhelming 84% of respondents reported at least one workplace factor that negatively impacted their mental health. Today, my guest is an attorney who's uniquely qualified to help me talk about all of this. Frank Ramos is partner at the Clark Silvergate Law Firm, and although we're not going to focus much on the law today, Frank is regarded as one of the best lawyers in the country. In fact, he's written 15 books for lawyers and serves as a mentor for young lawyers. But back in 2013, Frank was in a deep depression himself that consumed all his relationships, tasks, thoughts, and projects. Frank shares that those two years were the darkest of his life, and since then, he has become devoted to helping others, which we hope to do on today's show. Welcome, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm really happy to have you on the show, and this is a topic that's sometimes difficult to discuss, but is one that is completely relevant today. So I'm happy to have you help me unpack it. Of course, of course. Before we get into the topic, though, let's start by having you give a thumbnail of your career journey and share with our listeners, Frank, who inspired you the most along the way? Sure. I uh, have been practicing law for about 25 years, most of the time in a firm now here in Miami called Clark Silverglade, doing litigation, almost exclusively litigation all those years here in Miami. And... Um, I didn't initially want to become a lawyer. I was considering pursuing a career in politics or perhaps in foreign services. And certain things opened up and ended up going to law school here at University of Miami. And then I've been practicing ever since, just turned 50 last year. And uh, you know, this has been what I've been doing most of my life. Along the way, I've had my share of mentors in the legal field 
And because of them, I'm trying to pay it forward through social media, through my books and my speaking opportunities by helping young lawyers develop themselves and their careers and their futures as well. Fantastic. Who inspired you most along the way on your journey? Was there any particular person or thing that really motivated you? You know, I had a number of people along the way uh, that have focused on paying it forward. A number of attorneys and other professionals who believe it's a privilege to do whatever you're doing, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, accountant, whatever career or opportunity you have. There are many people out there who don't have those opportunities. And it's, you know, we all have certain privileges, certain things that happen in our lives that are for the best that other people aren't as fortunate. And so we have an obligation to help others who uh, may not have as much as we have, may not have the same resources or opportunities. And through, uh, I don't know if there's any one individual per se, but so many of them along the years, especially the most successful ones, I always found curious, are the ones who were most adamant about uh, bringing other people along and bringing them up. So I've tried to follow their example and their pattern and the way they do things by reaching out to young lawyers, law students, other professionals, uh, not only to help them with their careers, but also individuals who've suffered from mental health and depression issues, as you mentioned, I did for a number of years. And I think what I've learned is that so often we face difficult times, not only to overcome them, but to help others overcome them as well. And uh, just as a side note, before we hear a little bit more about your own personal experience, don't you believe, Frank, often that when we can move through those mental health challenges that we become better as a result? So we're... <laughs> we're able to offer people more and give back and we have experiences that are valuable that can really serve the workplace and our communities better wouldn't you say i agree i think in order to help somebody who suffers from mental health depression it makes it a lot easier for me to speak to them as i went through it myself and i know the issues they're facing i know the self-talk they're going through the opportunities that they may have the resources that are available. And I think I can have a much more attuned conversation. And the fact that I kind of got through and came out the other end kind of provides some sort of hope for them. You know, one, often they're surprised to see that someone like me went through it because, you know, I'm a little bit older, I'm a professional, I've been involved in a number of organizations. Even, I guess, if you had some sort of traditional or stereotypical view of a depressed person, I really wouldn't fit within that description. And so that kind of alleviates our concerns that, you know, that they're not different or unusual for having gone through or going through that. And then two, knowing that someone like them or similar to them has made it to the other side and kind of made it to the forest is also very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So share about your experience. What, what was going on in your life that prior to 2013 when you sort of hit this difficult season? And, and just take us through that time in your life, if you would. Sure. I think um, there's a strong genetic predisposition to mental health issues, whether depression or anxiety. My mother suffered from chronic depression. I had two uncles who committed suicide and a cousin who was suicidal. Mm. Uh, it all seemed to come from my mother's side of the family, but pretty much everybody on her side of the family had either suffered with chronic depression or had succumbed to it. And so uh, it's important for anybody who is having issues to be aware of their family tree and know where that's coming from. And so I do think there's a, a strong genetic predisposition toward it. And so I think even from an early age, being raised by uh, people who are chronically depressed, you know, they have a certain view of the world, which isn't always accurate. And that kind of gets passed along to kids who are very 
impressionable. So from a younger age, you seem to be a little bit more afraid, a little bit more concerned, uh, a bit more trepidation along the way, you're less risk, willing to take risks, more risk adverse, and that sort of compounds over life. And so when something small may happen where somebody else would simply bounce back or overlook it, it becomes very catastrophic in your youth and kind of snowballs and becomes much bigger. So like, you know, making that phrase, making a mountain out of a molehill, a molehill that's kind of common for people who are in that field or, or in that vein. And so I think I always struggled with it, but I think it really hit me. And again, I, I, I'm trying to age myself to 50, that happened back around 2012 or so, about, yeah, I just was right around 40, I guess. Uh, and I don't think it had anything to do with that age per se. I think it was just certain things probably weren't going as well as I'd hoped work-wise and some other things. And, and again, if I wasn't predisposed or hadn't been raised to see the world a certain way, I probably would have navigated it pretty well, but I didn't. And it's very, um, it's one of those things that once you start sliding down, it's hard to like stop. You, know, you start sliding down a, a mudslide and there's nothing to grab onto and keep falling down the rabbit hole, as they say. And it's very insidious and the way you view the world, it's more than just being sad or upset. It's more than uh, just being physically down. You really have an alternative view of reality. It becomes very um, different. You know, I, I think the analogy I use is that people who are optimists see their glasses half full. People are pessimists see it as half empty. And people who are chronically depressed see the water is being poisoned. They just have a very different view of what they're dealing with. And so it's hard to, you're not rational, it's hard to talk to a rational person because you are seeing things that really aren't there. And I'm not trying to, I'm not saying you're viewing things, but you're like delusional. You know, you just, your view of the world just doesn't match up to the world itself. And the more you try to explain it to people, the more they're kind of put it back. And you also have this mentality that you're trying to purposely push people away uh, to the point when there's no one left to be pushed away. And then it only confirms your belief that, you know, you're alone, you deserve to be alone. So, uh, so that was kind of the cycle that I had between 2012 and I guess through 2014, about two and a half, three years, I suppose. And it was tough. And it just, you know, I went to see a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists, was on a lot of cocktails and medications. And my story is a little unique. I don't think yours can gleam a whole lot as to how I got out. I, I got to the point where I was on so many uh, medications physically, I just couldn't really tolerate them anymore. I just had lost my coordination. I couldn't even walk up or downstairs. And so I basically largely just went cold turkey, which is a terrible idea. And I would never <laughs> recommend that to any of your listeners or viewers. And then I, I, it was somewhat abrupt. I basically uh, had hit a wall, kind of hit bottom and you know, decided I had to get out or I was going to end up at the end of the rope. And so that, so my experience is a little unique, but, but along the process of that, I, I learned, you know, obviously it's really important to find uh, a mental health counselor that you can work with. There's so many out there to me have different approaches. Important to figure out what medication, if any, works for you. And there's both, you know, psychotropic medications. There's, uh, you know, more natural ways of doing it, but you have to find what works best for you and your system. Each of us is, is different. And not to treat mental health as sort of, you know, a universal uh, one approach to it. Uh, and always, always have like a good support system in place. You have people that are willing to kind of walk through with you and walk alongside of you through the whole process and always try to be very self-aware of where you're going, what you're doing, you know, kind of check in on yourself and understand or question when you see something or say something, whether that made sense or not. Like it may, you know, again, we constantly have these voices going on in our head, you know, talking to ourselves and 
either affirming or undermining ourselves. And it's really important to be aware of what we're saying to ourselves and, and whether it's accurate or not, and whether it's positive or negative, and what impact that's having on our psyche and our psychology and our, our emotional state. And so were there people in your work community that really helped you during that journey as well? Uh, you know, I, I really, I reached out to a lot of people and there weren't that many people. I think the idea of mental health, getting through mental health has become something we're all more cognizant about. I want to say in the last five years, I, I believe that when I came up during that time to 2012, 2014, especially in the legal field, it was not looked upon as something you really wanted to talk about um, because it seemed like you were less than. Being a litigator, um, you know, we're kind of adversarial. We're out to fight on behalf of our clients and something like mental health or depression is kind of seen as a weakness. You didn't really talk about it. I think that's become, both in the legal profession and other professions, I think it's become much more open about it. And curiously, there was a, a lawyer who I knew very well. I did defense work primarily. He did plaintiff's work. He was considered one of the top plaintiff's lawyers in the country. He had multiple million dollar and billion dollar uh, verdicts and was considered, one, I think, probably one of the top 10 plaintiff's lawyers not only the country, but of all time, really. And uh, he had actually helped me with a lot of my writing projects and then some other things when we were on opposite sides of, of some cases. And in 2016, he took his life. Uh, oh, this wow. is after I kind of come through my thing hmm. and he hanged himself. And, you know, I read about it and I had no idea. I mean, I really had no idea. He was a gentleman who had everything. You know, he had a lovely wife. He was in great physical health. And he looked like he walked out of the pages of GQ. He dressed great. He had, you know, all the trappings of a successful life, a nice home, a boat. He had stable horses. Again, he had, you know, tried multiple cases for huge verdicts, was in the cover of multiple magazines, was constantly being interviewed and had a huge reputation, you know, like every big plaintiff's case in South Florida would seem to come to him or across his desk. And, um, and no one had any idea. And one day he took his life and, uh, and I guess maybe with the exception of a few people that were really close to him had no idea that he suffered from Crack depression, and, um, and so you just never know. You never know who in your circle or your field or sphere is suffering from mental health issues. I think there's this belief that people who are depressed, you know, that they're depressed. But I think most people who are depressed do a pretty good job of hiding it because they see it's a weakness or they perceive it that way. And so a lot of times it's too late. Like by the time you have any real inclination as to what's going on, that person's already. You know, like you often hear about it after the fact. Everybody's so surprised that so-and-so took their lives or so-and-so ended up being Baker acted or whatever else and no one had any idea. And, and I was pretty good. And I think most people are pretty good at hiding it until you're not, until it really, everything just starts falling apart around you. Yes, yeah, so you just never know. It's, it's very insidious. Uh, sometimes it's not apparent and it's hard to deal with because it's not like, you know, a broken bone or... Uh, some other health issue that, you know, has an ABC approach to it. You know, if you have a, a cold, you treat it this way. If you have a virus, you treat it that way. Mental health is, each of us, again, is different. Uh, each of us, you know, react differently to certain treatments, protocols. Each of us, you know, have different approaches. And it's very time-consuming. Like, you know, dealing with depression and coming out the other end or anxiety or bipolar, whatever it is, it's, it's a very time-consuming thing. You know, most people who treat for depression or seeing their psychologists or mental health professional once a week. They may be in support groups, they may be journaling, they may be meditating. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you have some sort of disease, you know, you should a doctor maybe once a month 
you got a prescription and then it goes away. So it's, it's, it's a big time commitment. It's something that you're constantly aware of and conscious of, and it's something that requires a lot of effort on your part to you know, deal with and address. And it seems like with the example of your friend, you know, one of the th statistics that's com becoming more commonly known is that employees stay at the workplace. They stay in their jobs if they have a friend in the workplace. And they're also finding that the higher levels of engagement mean actually knowing people personally in addition to their profession and what's expected of them at work. And it seems as though your friend who took his life, if he had had somebody with a deep connection at the work at work that he could have confided in, then that could have possibly benefited him, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I agree. I think employers and companies should do a better job, can do a better job, being aware of what's going on with their team. Obviously, the bigger the company gets, the harder that is to do, but you find a way to make sure that everybody's responsive or um, responsible to somebody else. You know, if you have a company and it's like 100 employees, you know, one person can't be responsible for all 100 employees, but you know, you manage in such a way that maybe somebody's responsible for 10 people. Mm -hmm. and, and somebody's responsible for that person watching those 10 people. So everybody has somebody to ensure that, you know, if somebody starts acting differently, or, you know, I, I don't like using the word unusual, but I think the best way of approaching is, is different. Like somebody, we all have our baselines of behavior and we all act a certain way and suddenly for acting differently. You know, it doesn't have to mean that suddenly you're depressed. Sometimes people become very manic, you know, people who are very reserved uh, become very manic in their behavior. And that's unusual. And a lot of times you're trying to do that because you're trying to hide the fact that they're depressed. So they figure if I act really happy, then who would think I'm depressed? So I think any change in the baseline is important. In order to know what the change of the baseline is, you have to know what the baseline is. So you have to have people right. who know your people well enough so you know what that baseline behavior is. And so you can say, well, you know, this is a little weird. You know, he's always on time, suddenly he's late. Uh, or she's late, uh, you know, they're always very talkative at lunch. They're not talking at lunch anymore. You know, they, you know, whatever it is, you know, things, and, and you notice these things, again, if, uh, if you work closely with your team, you'll notice that something's different. And again, you have to have enough ability to communicate and be open and be transparent so that you can approach that person and say to him or her, you know, I notice this or that, okay, is going on? And, and then be able to facilitate assistance, you know, you know, does your firm have health insurance that provides mental health? And, you know, do you know somebody who they can talk to? So, you know, again, you may be the only person between them and them doing something drastic. So uh, I, it's kind of a large weight in all of our shoulders. But I think if we all do our part, then we can probably save some lives along the way. Yeah, and it seems to me like the workplaces that have a culture that really promotes mental health must be undergirded in trust because to have somebody be vulnerable and share difficult things that are going on in their lives, if trust is that is not there, it's not, it's just not going to happen. And so you also need to be engaging and asking the right questions of people. So once you have this trust, asking the right questions, which are really framed and come from a place of compassion. So you actually care about the person. It's not just that they're not performing well. So you're going to inquire what the heck's going wrong, but you actually care about them as a person. And if the trust is there and you do care about them as a person, the likelihood that they'll open up seems to be greater, wouldn't you think? 
No, I agree. I think your team, your employees, people that you supervise have to know that you actually care for them, that you're more than just a resource for them, that you're creating, you know, you're performing a job for them. Uh, and there's really no way of being cute about it or somehow trying to pretend that you really care. I mean, that's, I think we all intuitively know when someone genuinely cares about us and that we don't. And, and quite frankly, not everybody at your company is probably suitable to be a mentor, to be someone who is empathetic, someone who has emotional intelligence. You know, some people just aren't like that. And you have to understand who on your team is more conscientious and conscious about those sort of things and put them in positions where they can supervise and observe and bring uh, to others' attention when something's wrong. And you know, some people just have this old world view that, you know, you're here to job and you're not here to complain, you're here to work and whatever issues you have, you know, deal with that at home. And, and those certainly are the people you want to uh, sort of put front and center and dealing with sorts of issues. And, and people are people, you know, you know like they're, they're people who are good at this and people aren't bad and aren't good at particularly bad at it. And, to try to make somebody who is not equipped to handle this is quite a mistake. That's not really good for anybody. It's not good for them. It's not good for the people who may need their help. And so, but I, but you know, I, I'm pretty sure pretty much at any company, no matter what their size, there's somebody. I'm sure like more than somebody who has the right skill set and mind frame and uh, communication skills that are necessary to do this sort of thing. And so, any employer, I think the first thing to do is kind of identify those people in their organization that are equipped to handle that and you know give them some responsibility to do just that. So it sounds like you're actually advocating for some some process to be put in place so that we systematize this a little bit. We we gain a better understanding and we try we try to learn about who is competent internally and then we leverage those people to help us create a culture in an environment where mental health is promoted and we try to remove the stigma and the shame that is associated with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think any organization, any company, any firm, any nonprofit, you know, whatever organization or company or entity you're running, there should be some sort of mental health component to it in terms of addressing the needs of your team, especially uh, in light of what happened with COVID, you know, two years we were in deep isolation in terms of just the world, as you mentioned, all the things that we're constantly bombarded with in the news and our daily lives. It's, and, you know, our emotional component of who we are and our psyche and our psychological persona is such a big part of who we are. And to somehow assume that we leave it pure when we get to work is naive. And to suggest that we can kind of ignore it doesn't really help. And I, and I think it also is a good way to create stronger teams. If, if your team knows that you're genuinely concerned about who they are and what their interests are, uh, you, you create a lot of loyalty that way. I think individuals who feel like they're marginalized or don't have the resources they need or don't feel that they can be open about whatever issues they're going through are probably going to be looking elsewhere. And this job market where there's so many job openings, so few people, and so, so little talent that you run the risk as an employer or supervisor to lose quality people if you're not attuned to what their emotional, psychological needs are and helping them address them. And I would underscore one thing you said earlier too, which is really that the importance of not allowing people who don't have the skills or competency to have these conversations. And I shouldn't say not allowing, but not putting them in a position or encouraging them to have these types of conversations with others that may be struggling with mental health issues because it can actually backfire. 
So in other words, if you have somebody that's not equipped and they're trying to, and it might even be a manager with one of his direct, his or her direct reports. If they try to enter into a conversation and they're, they're trying to inquire what's going on and they're also trying to coach the employee in an inappropriate way to just move on and move through whatever they're dealing with, when it's a much more complex issue, then that could be really problematic and, and ultimately lead to increased turnover as well, right? Right. I think the biggest problem employers have is that they don't realize how long-term of commitment it is to help somebody through mental health issue. Sometimes the commitment, like some people think they'll take at most a few weeks, and sometimes it takes a few months and even a few years. And the idea of that is a bit overwhelming for employers. Like, what, what do you mean I have to deal with this for a long-term problem, especially when I can't see this? It's not like he or she has cancer or, you know, got into an accident or something. He just has the blues, as they say, or has some, you know, they're not feeling well, whatever it might be. And so I think companies are best served to understand that it's a one-on-one sort of case-by-case basis and sometimes somebody just does need you know a couple of counseling sessions or just needs a reset maybe you know, a vacation or something that they feel burnt out of words and some people it's much more serious and chronic long term and so uh and also i think some of the more high performing high functioning people some of the biggest stars in your team are the ones that are most struggling with depression the gentleman i mentioned earlier i mean he was literally one of the best plant floors I've ever seen and he ended up taking his life. And I think there's some correlation between uh, high levels of IQ, you know, people who are geniuses, a lot of them suffer from depression, anxiety, people who are really at the top of their field suffer from depression, anxiety. I'm not sure why that is. I've never sat down and studied it, but it seems as if there is some correlation. I think our brains are just wired differently when you hit that certain level of performance. Uh, you see that a lot with celebrities. You see that with sports stars, and, and that may be due to the pressures that they face otherwise, but it does seem disproportionate to affect the people that are your best folks. And so the, the odds are if you have some superstars in your team, they're probably disproportionately affected by mental health and your other team members. And those are the people you really want to keep, and those are the people you're going to have to invest in for the long term to ensure they get the help. Yeah, and I would add, too, that sometimes it seems as though when achievement orientation is so closely tied to identity that it can lead to a greater incidence of depression or other mental health challenges because once there is a failure or a problem, it becomes about the person's identity rather than actually just looking at it as a stepping stone along their career journey or some learning and new information about something that they tried that didn't work well. Wouldn't you say? No, I agree. I think we so equate ourselves with our jobs and our careers that, and depression and anxiety can really throw a monkey wrench in things. Suddenly we can't concentrate, we can't focus, we don't have the energy just getting up in the morning sometimes is a chore. And so that's over the long term, that's going to adversely affect your job performance. And then adverse job performance somehow undermines your view of who you are, which then creates that cycle with then doing even worse. And, and a lot of people who suffer from depression or anxiety enter this vicious cycle where, you know, they don't have the energy or the ability or the cognitive uh, wherewithal to do something. They don't do it. They underperform. That sort of confirms their own personal bias that they're not good enough. And then just sends them off spiraling. So let's get really pragmatic for a minute. Uh, let's just say I'm a manager or a leader in my organization and I can see, I, I, I have a hunch that one of my direct reports 
or even my team members, if I'm on a team, is struggling, what's the first step that I should take in that situation? I think, first of all, you have to confirm for yourself that that person is not acting as you expect him or her to act. And it may have just been a one-off thing. Maybe he or she said or did something that was a little unusual, but it's just, you know, we all say or do things sometimes that are a little unusual. This happens. So first of all, you have to sort of see if there's a pattern, uh, not very long pattern, but some pattern. Once you acknowledge that there is one, that he or she is showing up late consistently, or they're taking longer lunches than they usually do, or they're more argumentative, or they're shorter with you, or they're not being as communicative, then you know you really should ask yourself, am I the person to approach him or about this? You may or may not be. Uh, am I the best person? You know, again, if there's something that is wrong with that individual, your primary concern is getting him or her help, and you may not be the best conduit to do that. So uh, you have to be honest with yourself to find out how good you are. And you may be one of those people that maybe you're not really the right person to approach. But let's assume you all assume, you know, you feel like you have a good relationship with that uh, report, uh, that individual, and you know him or her, you've had your share of communications, you know, you each talk about your weekends, your family and everything else. And, you know, and there's enough of a basis for a relationship that you can approach him or her in a private setting, you know, you approach them in their office or maybe after hours and no one else can kind of interfere and intervene or sort of overhear the conversation and you say, you know, I feel or I noticed that you said or did this, I'm a little concerned. And, and you don't make it about the work, you don't make it about like their performance, you make it like you're a genuine concern about something that may be going on, you know, you home, something else. And you see what the response is. And I think a lot of people, if they're approached the right way and you know, you're not being defensive, you don't put them in a defensive position, you don't make it sound as if it's a performance related issue, then they're willing to be more open about it. And so it's really important that first uh, foray to trying to figure out what's going on. It's very open, very natural, very supportive. And I would, I would think most times you would find that they're willing to share something or at least let you know what's going on. It may be, Again, you know, it may be something external at home. Maybe they're not getting enough sleep, or maybe you know, something happened. You know, some life event happened uh, that wasn't that significant, but it's a bit of an annoyance for them. And that's what's causing them to be distracted, or sometimes it's something bigger. And so you start having those conversations, and you have to kind of make an evaluation as to whether or not whatever they're discussing or sharing with you is significant enough to sort of encourage them to seek professional help, or at least talk to somebody else. And professional help isn't always the first thing you go to. Maybe they want to talk to somebody else that has gone through something similar, or there's somebody else at your company or firm that can talk to them about that. Uh, but you're constantly trying to ensure that either their behavior is going back to what you consider normal or baseline, or if it's not, then you're getting the help that they need. You know? And again, at some point, it may require seeking professional assistance, it may require you finding out for them or sharing with them what your insurance of your work or through other sources are so that they can get mental health coverage, you know, whether it's a counselor or a psychiatrist or medication, whatever it might be, and kind of assume that you may be the only person that's noticed this. Like never assume well somebody else has that they're married, they have children, adult children, or they you know, live with their parents, whatever it is, like, you know, somebody else is taking care of it. I think people end up taking their lives and everybody in that internal circle thought so-and-so should have been on top of it. And that person thinks that you should have been on top of it. And you think somebody else should have been on top of it. So I think a rule of thumb 
is to, until you know you've actually passed it off to somebody else legitimately, assume that you're sort of the point of contact. Until you know for sure that the spouse or the son or the daughter or the father or the mother or the cousin or the brother or whoever, like really is taking responsibility for it, then, then you're responsible. Um, and, and then along the way, just kind of, you know, stay in tune. And, uh, and there's a line, obviously, you know, people want to have privacy. People don't really want to talk to you about all their issues and problems. Uh, people feel vulnerable about talking about depression and anxiety. Um, so, you, you know, it's a fine line. You, know, you want to help people, but you don't want to be particularly intrusive. You don't want to uh, sort of invade their realm of what they want to keep secret. And certainly at no point want to breach any of the confidential information that they shared with you because that would be a huge breach of trust. So but that's generally, I think, the process. And I think in order to have that process enacted, you have to train your people on how to do that. And, and for some people, that'd be very intuitive. Like what I just told you, I think I'm sure some of your listeners are like, oh yeah, that's obvious. And some of your other listeners are like, oh, I've never thought of that. So you can't assume that everybody in your team is going to know to behave that way or to behave in a similar fashion. And so it's important to provide some sort of training to your people. And I'm not talking about like bringing in a formal counselor, but just simply kind of talking through with them what I discussed with you or something of a lot of similar vein where there's, there's a process in place. And so... People know how to identify uh, somebody who may have an issue and, and knows how to respond and deal with it and address it as best as they can. Yeah, and it seems like with that training, one of the greatest opportunities is to actually normalize the conversation, to make make people right. understand that it is okay to bring this up and just to talk about it. Um, right, right. We're going to shift into some lightning round questions. So I want to toss some questions at you. You give me your top of mind answers. The first one is, what are you most grateful for? Uh, you know, uh, I'm most grateful for uh, the people in my life who have always been supportive. You know, my spouse, my boys, some close friends who, you know, I've done a lot of different things. I, like I said, I went through depression and, and they've always been very supportive. And I have some close friends who have been very supportive over the years. And, uh, it's always important to have uh, a group of cheerleaders behind you. For sure. You know, I'm just reflecting as I continue with the other questions that gratitude and service are often the antidote to depression, right? So if we can focus on things that we are grateful for, and there's almost always things within our lives that we are grateful for, and we couple that with serving others in some way and physical fitness, I didn't add that one, but the kind of the trifecta, if we do those three things, the likelihood that we'll either come out of a mental health challenge or depression or that we will stay mentally healthy goes way up. Absolutely, absolutely. I think those are all very important and key issues to address, trying to stay uh, clear of any chronic mental health issues. Yes, and of course, they never replace the important professional help that people may need. Okay, the next question is, what is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? Most difficult lesson is you can't change people. And so people are who they are. And I think the biggest lesson for any person in a position of putting together a team is that you better be really good at hiring people and bringing people in because they are who they are. And if they're not a right fit, then that's on you. You know, And somehow you bring somebody in and they're not doing their job, they're not really equipped or talented or they don't have the right attitude, then you really have to think through how you're hiring people and onboarding people. Great point. Who's one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Uh, one person I could interview. Yeah, I'd love to interview Bono from U2. 
somebody who has sort of stood the test of time over so many decades with really resonant music and has touched so many people's lives. I know he recently went to Ukraine. I heard uh, that. His, uh, it was one of his uh, bandmates, after whom and they performed in the subways there. Uh, you know, to be sort of, to be, I, I guess, a musical celebrity or any celebrity and actually have a really important impact. I know he was very uh, front on the issue of AIDS. He's been an issue of homelessness. He's uh, really met with world leaders, you know, and he has a number of charities he's related to, to be able to use his, uh, his soapbox and make so many changes is wonderful. Yeah, he's trying to change the world. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a top book recommendation? Maybe not necessarily a law, a legal oriented book, but one for our broader listening community. You know, I read a book and I think I read it last year. I think it was called 2034, the exact year, but it was a fictional version of World War III where we were in a war with China. And it was really uncanny how, uh, not so much how realistic it was, or it did come across very realistic, is how fragile our relationships are. And, you know, before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, you're like, oh, yeah, so what? Now they're talking about nuclear war. God forbid something like that happens, but you don't really appreciate, like, how close we are. You know, we used to always talk about the doomsday clock back in the 80s and really how we're only a few minutes away from you know, somebody making a really bad choice. It's really uh, eye-opening and sobering. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think the best piece of advice is to figure out early on what your purpose is and pursue it. And the way I define purpose is finding out where your talents, passions, and dreams overlap, or if you were to create a Venn diagram, that'd be where your purpose is. Unless you're really pursuing it and pursuing it wholeheartedly, you're going to be kind of dissatisfied. And I think everybody has an opinion as to what we should be doing, and the world certainly has one, and that may not be consistent with what we really want to do. And, you know, the world thinks we should make a ton of money. There's nothing wrong with that, but maybe your desire isn't to do that. It's to do, you know, be a school teacher or never going to make a lot of money, but really want to do that. And, and if you go off and become some venture capitalist, you, know, you may live in a huge house, but you may never be fully satisfied. So try to figure out for who you are and what you want to do. I think it's, it's really it's essential to, to pursuing happiness and joy. Great advice. So Frank, what's the most important takeaway that you would say to that uh, to leave our listeners with from our talk today? You know, be very cognizant of the people around you. Uh, really pay attention. Most of us don't pay attention very well. We don't listen well. We don't look at other people really closely. We're preoccupied with our own concerns and worries and issues. And, you know, that's fine, but pay attention because you'll be surprised what you see and what you hear. And there's patterns in everything. There's patterns in each of our behavior, how we interact, what we say, and what we do. And once that pattern shifts, there always has to be an explanation. Like we're, we're creatures of habit. So if we're doing something different, there's a reason why we're behaving or saying something different. And if it's bad, you know, somebody, you know, somebody can somebody be very, you know, much more gregarious and happy and suddenly they're you know, in a much better place because they've lost weight, they're exercising, whatever else. If somebody is just kind of slow and more lethargic and they're not as engaged, you know, unless they're sick, unless they have a cold or flu or something, then there's something else going on and you need to do your part to try to figure out what that is. Sure. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your vulnerability and just being a model, um, setting an example. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. 
Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.